Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. The Christmas season is upon us, and there are so many issues around the subject of Christmas, the person of Jesus Christ, the historicity of the gospel accounts. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Craig Blomberg also was on the show last fall. He talked about evidence for the Gospels and for faith in Christ. He is the Distinguished Professor of the New Testament at Denver Seminary. He has authored and edited many books, including Gospel Perspectives, Volume 6, The Miracles of Jesus, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, Interpreting the Parables, Jesus and the Gospels, An Introduction and Survey, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, Making Sense of the New Testament, Three Important Questions, and Contagious Holiness, Jesus' Meals with Sinners. He has also been quoted in numerous other books, like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, and of importance today, The Case for Christmas. I would encourage you to pick that book up, The Case for Christmas. You can find it on Amazon, and you'll enjoy Dr. Blomberg's section in that book. He's known around the world as one of the foremost experts on the New Testament and the Gospels. So welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Blomberg. Thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you also. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing great. It's great to hear you. Thank you so much for taking a few moments with us. Before we go any further, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? Probably one that goes back to my childhood, and now that most of the Swedish relatives on my father's side of the family have passed away, it's not an ongoing one, but we used to have wonderful Swedish holiday food, everything from potato bologna and silta to limpa bread, cardamom coffee cake, rice pudding, all the fun old Swedish culinary treats. (laughs) It sounds great. Yeah, it's making me hungry. Well, Dr. Blomberg, we'd like to start with a question, being that Christmas is upon us, such a, a highlight of the year for Christians, but for those that view the story of Jesus somewhat from a skeptical standpoint, or even those that would disparage the life, birth, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, they usually start by attacking the Gospels. What do you think is the core evidence for the reliability of the life of Jesus as depicted in the Gospels of our New Testament? And how would you go about challenging someone to view them as historical fact as compared to mythology? Certainly the literary genre of the four Gospels most closely resembles biography and historiography from the ancient world. The dating of the events and the time lag between them and when the Gospels were written down and the time lag between when the Gospels were written down and the earliest manuscripts that we now have is a much shorter period of time than for almost all other works from the ancient world. And so there's very high probability that people wrote the accounts who were in a position to know what actually happened and that those accounts were copied very carefully so that the translations of the Bible that we now have come from very accurate sources. It was an age when the cultures surrounding the ancient Middle East and the Mediterranean world in what we would today call oral cultures committed large amounts of important epic and even sacred traditions in their various societies to memory in ways that boggle our minds today 
but uh, it's been demonstrated in all kinds of different walks of life because of the importance of the events around the birth, life, and death of Jesus and resurrection. For his first followers, there would have been every desire to treat those accounts carefully and with reverence. So you put all of this information together, and unless one is willing to be uh, agnostic about world history in general for more than just a few hundred years ago, the evidence for the life of Jesus is about as compelling as anything we have. Now, that is a great explanation of why we should accept the Gospels and their validity. In the Gospels, we find the story of Jesus' birth, which is what we're celebrating. And many different atheists would try and say that the virgin birth and Christ's birth in general and the different stories that surround it are nothing more than a myth or a story that the early church perpetuated. And I guess I'm going to go ahead and read a quote that I pulled from an atheistic source. It says, It would be simple to say that the nativity story people find so engrossing today couldn't possibly have happened as they experience it. Indeed, it's not even possible for believers today to claim the Bible as an authoritative source for their story because it just doesn't appear as they tell it. When we look back at the standard nativity story and its sources, we should begin to realize that what people take for granted as the nativity story today isn't presented in neat, straightforward terms in the Bible. It is instead a cultural creation that has been carefully woven together over the centuries from bits and pieces found not just in the Gospels, but in other parts of the Bible as well. So how would you respond to that atheistic tidbit, and why should we accept the story of Christ's birth as it's presented in the Gospels? What's intriguing about that quotation, as long as it is, is that it never actually says anything. It never actually <laughs> gives any objection. It doesn't say what isn't straightforward. It doesn't say what comes from other sources. It says uh, someone could very easily say this, but it doesn't actually give any reasons what would make it easy for them to say it. So it's kind of hard to respond to an affirmation that doesn't contain any any argument or any evidence. In fact, there are no bits of information that I'm aware of from anywhere else in the New Testament that have ever been read back into the Christmas story. There's all kinds of things in terms of modern celebration for Christmas uh, and I'm not just thinking about Santa Claus and the snowman and all of that stuff, but many Christians are aware that the average manger scene puts together a lot of things that wouldn't have originally been together. Matthew describes things that took place as as he explicitly tells us in chapter 2 of Matthew after Jesus' birth. And he has the Magi coming to Bethlehem when the baby Jesus and his parents are living in a house which is quite different than the cattle trough that we know of as a manger that appears in Luke's account. Luke is describing the events immediately surrounding the birth of Jesus. There's no contradiction there. They're just telling different aspects of the same story. Is it possible that Mary conceived without a human father? Well, then we're asking the question of, is anything miraculous possible? And that's another important but separate and long conversation. It's interesting that science is today, much more so than a generation or two ago, 
in general, far more cautious about saying what could and could not have happened, especially if a God actually exists. But if I'm starting with the presupposition that it's impossible for there to be a God, and therefore there's, it's impossible for there to be miracles, sure, I'll object to a number of features of the Christmas story and a number of features of many other parts of the Bible. Even then, that doesn't necessarily call into question the rest of the story, since the evidence from non-Christian sources is so strong that there was somebody by the name of Jesus who was a leading Jewish teacher and was crucified under Pontius Pilate in around A.D. 30. If he lived, then obviously he had to be born, and there had to be some accurate information about his birth. So even if one were to be suspicious of the miracles and strip them away, that wouldn't be any reason for rejecting the rest of the information and that was just so you know, that was just from a atheistic website. It wasn't a quote from a mainstream atheistic scholar, but kind of typical of what might pass as a, oh, sure. an authentic objection on a college campus. I talk with people that read sites like this, and they hear statements like that, and they think, oh, there's no evidence whatsoever that Jesus Christ lived, died, was resurrected. And I've even had people say, I don't even know if Jesus could have existed. But if he did, who knows what he was really like or what he really did. And I think they're picking that up from different sources like this, which, again, are far outside the mainstream of academia. Very much so. And the really scary thing about anybody who would do that is that these are people that hopefully, for their sakes, will get employment and will become the next generation of teachers and lawyers and doctors and scientists and construction workers and everything else, and I certainly hope that in whatever professions they're being someday paid to perform, that the way they determine what should and shouldn't guide them in those occupations is not uh, the first website that they randomly hit at, because who knows what it may say, and there may be seven or eight different takes on the same topic, and only certain ones of them responsible it's very sad, tragic, that anybody as far along in their education as college would ever, on any topic except one random website, without any sense of whether it represents a scholarship or accuracy. Well, we're trying to correct that tragedy this morning by allowing you to tell us a little bit of what is true and what is trustworthy, and so I hope some of those students are listening this morning. <laughs> Dr. Blomberg, what would you say to someone, maybe not the hardline skeptic, but maybe someone who is looking at Christmas, who maybe has some kind of spiritual experience or orientation about them, maybe someone involved in the New Age or in one of the peripheral beliefs in Jesus that see him essentially as a good person, but maybe not God in human flesh, like the evangelicals would claim. How would you work them from that position to a position closer to the New Testament and seeing the real picture of who Jesus is? Again, if the key issue is simply a philosophical or scientific one, that there's too much supernatural that's involved in all of that for them to believe it, then that would be the kind of conversation that we would have to take. Do miracles happen today? Craig Keener, leading New Testament scholar and a very prolific author, has just published this fall uh, two large volumes from Hendrickson publishers that are simply entitled Miracles. 
he has amassed the largest collection under, I'd say, one cover, except it's two volumes, under two covers of documented supernatural events, many of them parallel to biblical miracles from every continent on the globe, and many of them quite recent. People who don't believe that there are events similar to the biblical miracles that have to date no scientific or medical explanation happening in our world today simply have their heads in the sand. On the other hand, it may be that someone has very different kinds of questions, and it's not that they're not open to the miraculous. If they have some spirituality to them, they may be, in fact, very open to them, but the question is quite different one, such as, aren't the stories of Jesus' birth really too much like stories that most scholars, including Christian scholars, would quickly say are mythological, are legendary, surrounding the birth of other ancient heroes and figures in the first century or before, in which case then the conversation would need to go in a quite different direction and to say, well, there are a lot of people out there who are saying that these days, but have you actually looked at the supposed parallels? The ones that have really anything close to the kinds of details we find in the New Testament all date from a post-Christian time. So uh, the New Testament writers could not possibly have borrowed from them, but it's very possible that someone wanting to support Mithraism, for example, uh, an important Roman cult in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, hmm. tried to make their religion look more attractive by likening it more to emerging Christianity than it had been in the first century and before. If you look at those legends that are clearly pre-Christian, the so-called parallels are pretty remote. Alexander the Great, centuries after he lived and died, and for the first time centuries afterwards, did have some myths emerge about him that weren't there in his earliest biographers. And one of them was that on the night Alexander was conceived, his father, trying to uh, approach his mother, was unable to because of a giant python entwined around her body. Well, that'd scare anybody off. Um, and that was the virginal conception of Alexander. Well, my goodness, when you read the New Testament accounts, all that one reads is that the angel tells Joseph that Mary is pregnant with no explanation of how that is possible. Mm. And Luke adds that earlier on, Gabriel had said, the Most High, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Holy Spirit, there's none of the uh, physiological interest that you find in, in a lot of the ancient pre-Christian myths. Mm. It's also somewhat misleading to refer to all these parallels as involving virgins, because in most cases... They were not women who never had any sex. It was simply myths of a god appearing in human form and having relations with a woman who was already sexually experienced, in which case, yes, there's divine paternity in the story, but even then, through seemingly normal human sexual relations, which is not what uh, the Bible ever says God did in uh, in approaching Mary. So once you start looking at the... Uh, so-called parallels, you discover they're, they're not so parallel at all. Uh, one of the ways that we hear this presented, I think one of the most common questions slash objections uh, about the, the early life of Jesus and the birth of Jesus is the opposing genealogies in Matthew and Luke. 
And some have even said that that proves that Jesus was not uh, a descendant of the Jewish King David, as the Old Testament would predict that he was. How do you respond to those kind of objections? How would you walk someone through that particular issue of the different genealogies? There are a number of issues there. I suppose the heart of it is that Luke, in Luke 3, takes Jesus' uh, ancestry all the way back to Adam, the first man, and then refers to him as uh, the son of God, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and goes forward, is much more selective. The old King James Bible language of somebody begetting somebody else that sometimes (laughs) gets translated as being the father of can also mean being the ancestor of. So it's very clear, even just comparing Matthew with the Old Testament, that there are plenty of generations that have been left out. But probably the main issue that people are talking about when they claim that the the genealogies contradict each other is that the last third or so of each, from the time of the Jewish exile in Babylon on, have completely different sets of names. There are two explanations for this that have been given throughout church history, and we probably don't have enough information to know which one of them is actually correct. One is that Matthew represents Joseph's lineage and that Luke represents Mary's. There's reason to believe that Mary herself was from the line of David, and so even just the maternal line in Jewish circles was enough to establish a legal ancestry. But Joseph, who would have legally adopted Jesus as his son, also can trace his line back to David, and an adoptive lineage was also legally satisfactory. So uh, there's no problem either way of Jesus coming from the right messianic lineage. The other possibility is that Matthew represents Joseph's legal line, sorry, that, that Luke represents Joseph's human line, because in the Jewish world, something was practiced called the Leveret Law, when a husband died with his wife still childless, she was encouraged, if a brother existed, to remarry that brother, and then children, if they were born to that family, were considered legally equivalent to the deceased husband's children. And so you can actually have two sets of parents or children with completely different sets of names. Bart Ehrman makes a a whole lot of fun of that concept uh, (laughs) in uh, some of his writing about supposed contradictions in the Bible, but Mm. he's just ignoring a very basic principle of Jewish law and how uh, adoptive children were treated. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg right now about evidence for the Gospels and particularly the evidence for why we can celebrate Christmas. So both the case that you already discussed of Luke saying that shepherds visited the manger and Matthew saying that wise men visited a home later on, we would readily see that as not a problem. I know Ehrman and others would say there's a problem there, that those are contradictory. In reality, we see them as divergent aspects of the same story, which provide more information. Also, the same thing with the genealogy issue. So what about the different divergent aspects of the Christmas story in the Gospels? Those are a couple of them. Are those reasons to doubt the Gospel story of Christ's birth, or are they just extra information? Not unless you take divergent biographies of any person who's ever had more than one 
author write about them, and simply because one person includes certain aspects of an event and another includes different ones, especially when they do, in fact, overlap in numerous important details, when, as is the case of the birth narratives, standard critical scholarship does not assume that Matthew knew Luke or Luke knew Matthew, nor is this even a place where the so-called Q document, Teachings of Jesus, common to Matthew and Luke but not found in Mark, comes into play because he's still a child. He's not teaching anybody anything. So we have two independent accounts that both agree on the names of the parents, the name of the child, the role of angels, the locations in which things took place, the uh, biblical significance in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy of all of this, and other uh, more minor details. Once you have that kind of agreement, but then it happens that one writer adds information about who visited on the night of the child's birth, and another writer happens to add information about what took place two years later, leading to Herod going ballistic and ordering all the children two years old or younger in and around Bethlehem, baby boys, to be massacred. Why would he go up to age two unless this was a considerable time later? There's nothing contradictory about that, and nobody sees those as contradictions in any other biographies. They just somehow have a double standard when it comes to the Bible and say silly things about how it must contradict itself there. (laughs) Absolutely. I, I think it's obvious that these divergent details are just different aspects of the same story. And the critics often try to say that putting those different aspects from the different Gospels together into one narrative is not okay. Ehrman, for example, and Jesus Interrupted over and over and over, tries to pull out numerous different contradictions in his words, which are just different aspects that come from different Gospels. And he says if you put them into one, you're creating a fifth Gospel, and you just can't do that. And I'm always shocked by that kind of approach. I don't think we would do that with any other historical figure. We would try to get all the sources and find out the full picture of what really happened. So what is going on in their approach, and why are they wrong in trying to say that we cannot combine the different divergent aspects from the Gospels into one narrative? There actually is a nucleus of truth there that conservative Christians could do well to learn from, and that is that When we want to read a particular gospel, when perhaps we're in church listening to a preacher speak from a text, from an identifiable gospel, we don't want to so clutter up that passage. We don't want to include so much information that we might find from other parts of Scripture that we lose sight of what, let's say, Matthew is trying to teach in what he decided to include and what he decided not to include. From that point of view, I can agree with Ehrman that God did not inspire a harmony of the four Gospels. And so when we read from Matthew, we shouldn't talk much about shepherds or mangers uh, because they don't appear there. And we should teach and preach and read and reflect on and learn from what he does include. And similarly, if we're in Luke, then we shouldn't be talking about the Magi. And if you want to have fun with your manger scene like we've done when our girls were smaller and still living at home, 
you can put the Magi across the room someplace because <laughs> it'll take them quite a while to arrive. They haven't gotten there yet. On the other hand, to then say that for historical purposes, not to create a fifth book of the, the Bible, the Gospel according to, to Bart or whoever, but that for historical purposes we can't combine information for more than one source in order to get the fullest understanding, well, now you're just doing something that no historian does anywhere else in the world with any other part of world history. And I think it's confusing those two bits that Bart has done, whether consciously or unconsciously, and a lot of people don't stop to think about the difference. Well, we don't want to keep you all afternoon, Dr. Blomberg. I guess we would like to, but we yeah, do we, want to respect yeah. your time. Very much with <laughs> Real quick, I have to ask, because I know you mentioned it a minute ago, and I just want to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, to elaborate on it. There's a whole lot of prophecy about Jesus. Some say over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and some of those had to do directly with Christmas. What about prophecy that was fulfilled in the life of Christ? We have to distinguish different kinds of prophecies. I think 300 is rather exaggerated. I'm not sure where that number came from. But even if you say there are as many as 100 texts, a large number of these are not, when you look at them in their Old Testament context, future referring statements to something that will only happen at a distant time down the road. They may be uh, a statement like uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, which uh, referred collectively back to the children of Israel uh, coming out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. But Matthew in Matthew 2.15 will understand that in what scholars call typology, recognizing that God acts in repeated patterns of behavior throughout history and is it merely a coincidence that just as God's first covenant with Israel was established when he had to bring his people out of Egypt to, led by a man named Moses who had at one point to uh, have intervention to spare his life as a child? Is it just coincidence that when the new Moses comes, the one who is the new lawgiver, the inaugurator of the new covenant, that also as a baby, his life was spared when people sought to kill those like him. And fleeing to Egypt, he later returned to Israel and hence came out of Egypt. No, for the believing Jew in a world filled with providence, that's way too coincidental to be coincidental. <laughs> it's a sign of the sovereign God at work again. And that's a form of fulfilled prophecy every much as the more direct prediction and fulfillment, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Anybody who can't trace their parentage to Bethlehem need not apply. So you have both ends of the spectrum, and you have examples of partial and repeated fulfillments as well. Once you understand that whole range of kinds of prophecy and fulfillment, but understand it from a theistic Jewish perspective, it does remain a very powerful reason for understanding that Jesus is the one intended by God to deliver his people. Could you share a website or a blog that people could look you up at and find out more about you? www.denverseminary.edu is our Denver Seminary website, and 
I do write about once every couple of weeks on one of several faculty blogs on the website. So it's not something that I do repeatedly each week, but you'll see a link to uh, blogs, and then there'll be something called New Testament Musings by Craig Blomberg, and it would be delightful to have somebody peek in now and then. We'll sure encourage the audience to do that. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you this afternoon. We appreciate your time and uh, wish you the uh, merriest and most blessed Christmas, uh, you and your family. And best wishes to you and all the faculty at Denver Seminary. Thank you very much, and to you and yours as well. Have a Merry Christmas. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Christmas is not just a celebration of myth. It's not just Santa Claus and Christmas trees. But there really was a baby born 2,000 years ago, God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a painful, agonizing death on the cross, taking your sin and my sin upon himself paying for our sin. The Bible says he literally nailed it to the cross. And then he rose again. And even his resurrection is a fact in history that there is tremendous evidence for. Having heard this, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas knowing that you are not celebrating in vain. There is good Mm -hmm. evidence for your celebration today. And my hope is that you will make this the greatest Christmas ever by, if you haven't already, putting your trust in Christ, saying, Jesus, come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Forgive my sins. Literally turning your life over to him to be your Savior and Lord. He says that if you take that step, you'll be adopted into his family. And this really will be the greatest Christmas of your life. As we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening to The God Solution today. Merry Christmas. Silent night.